Hey everybody, it's Steven Casimiro from Adventure Journal. How are you? I am here with Justin Hausman, our senior editor. Justin, what's up? Good morning, good morning. Good morning, good morning. So, have you seen School of Rock? About eight, eight million times. Eight million times, excellent. Have you seen Nacho Libre? Seven, seven million times. Seven million, okay. A um, little bit of a side, which is better? School of Rock is in my top five. Uh, the music is good. I mean, Nacho Libre is a fantastic movie, but School of Rock is top five. Got to okay. be top five. Okay. So you're a Jack Black fan. Big time. Oh, yes. Tenacious, Tenacious D, D fan. Oh, yeah. You got to love Tenacious D. You kidding okay. me? I'm a, I'm a D head. <laughs> so the thing that I, one of the, one, one of the 8 million things that I love about School of Rock is, uh, oh, I mean, Jack Black, but also Mike White. So Mike White do you know Mike White? You know his oh, yeah. work? Okay, yeah, so yeah. Mike, for those of you who don't know Mike, Mike, um, he wrote School of Rock. Uh, he's in School of Rock. He plays Jack Black's roommate, Ned Schneebly. Ned Schneebly. Ned Schneebly. And Ned is a, uh, <laughs> he's a teacher at a school, a uh, private school. And um, I can't remember why he, he uh, has to bail for a little bit, but... Uh, Jack Black surreptitiously takes his place as a substitute teacher and, pretend, or, and pretends that he's he's Ned Schneebly. Um, so Mike is not a particular fan, I guess, of classic rock, and he wrote this music this movie basically so Jack Black had a venue for his his own music. <laughs> so Mike's amazing. I, he's um, you know he's he's in School of Rock. He's also I don't know if you know this. He's in Zombieland. Is he a zombie? He, no, he's not a zombie, actually. He plays a guy, um, kind of a schmuck, who gets taken advantage of by Emma Stone. Kind of a Ned Schneebly. Totally Ned Schneebly. He ends up dying in a bathroom stall. I think it's in a so, stall. Classic it's just, Schneebly. It's classic Schneebly and classic <laughs> Mike White. And, of course, Mike wrote White Lotus, which is just yeah. bonkers good. So uh, Mike also, you know, while we're um, singing his praises, he was on Survivor. And he and his dad were twice on um, The Amazing Race. And I think that the highest that they finished was uh, sixth, which I is pretty no bad. Idea. So there's a scene in School of Rock, uh, which you probably know, where Jack Black is um, teaching these guys a song. And the song is, it's, uh, I can't remember the exact title. I think it's The, the Legend of the Rent. Okay. And, and it goes, it basically goes, you're not hardcore, unless you live hardcore and the rent is, or the legend of the rent is way hardcore, something like that. So you're not hardcore unless you live hardcore, which is our prompt for today. The idea of coreness, man, it goes back a long ways in the adventure culture. And uh, we've wrestled with it over the years with AJ. Um, is it important to be core? Is it not important to be core? Is hardcore, what is hardcore? Is it silly? Is it ridiculous? Justin, your roots are in surfing. You've written a lot about coreness in surfing. So um, tell me tell me about core surfing and how surfers perceive coreness. Well, I would most of my writing is is me trying to figure out whether or not I'm actually even a hardcore surfer or have ever been. So it's a man, that's a tough concept. I um I first wrote about it. Because, well, so I live in Northern California, um, and I surf in San Francisco, which each winter just gets pummeled by some of the biggest beach break waves that you can surf on the planet. So 
if you don't like surfing those kinds of waves, you don't surf a lot in the wintertime in San Francisco, or at least you have to drive around a ton. And so I don't love surfing huge beach break waves. Uh, lots of reasons why. It's just not it's not my cup of tea. I'm, I'm, I'm classically a head high and under man in terms of my, per, my preferred wave height. But I've been surfing almost every day for like 25, 30 years at this point. You know, it's been my entire life for most of my life. And so I would, I would think about this. And it's like, well, what does it mean? If when it gets really big, I'm like, ah, I'm going to go somewhere else or I'm going to do something else. Like, does that, can you still be a core surfer if, if you're not like charging these big days? And that was what led me to, to write about it and think about it. And the conclusion I came to was not real. I don't think it matters that much to, you know, to have to like put yourself in harm's way to, uh, to be considered core, at least in the surf world. You know, if, if you're living and breathing something that, that should, that should be good enough. And, and I started thinking about how there are plenty of people who just show up at the beach and don't have a lot of experience and they'll throw themselves into just heinous surf. And does that make them more core than someone who built their life around it? I don't, you know, I don't think so. And so that, that's, that the, I think the answer I came up with was that it doesn't require you to, uh, in surfing anyway, you know, surf the most challenging waves on the planet. If your life revolves around surfing, that's about as core as it could possibly get. You know, if that's, if, if you've spent your whole life living in one spot, cause you like the waves there, if you sacrificed, you know, career and family stuff, cause you want to surf every day. I mean, it, that's, that's core. That's plenty core. Well, you, you wrote about these, I think for surfer magazine, correct? Correct. Okay. And did they go up on the surfer website? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the oh, yeah. surfers of course are known for eating their young and, yes. uh, the, um, it, the, the surfer uh, website comments were lively. Oh, yeah. So was there any kind of common commonality in the comments that you got? Like, how did, what was, what was the typical surfer that would take the time to comment? What, did, what was their take on this? On a surprisingly, uh, ag- surprisingly positive. And I think most, I think most people tended to agree with me about that. I mean, the, I like, I would, I would, I think that it's cool when you surf big waves. I think it's cool if you, if you surf, you know, nasty waves, but I think for the most part, most people tend to agree in the comments anyway, with me that if you're building your life around something, that's, that's what matters. I mean, you could live in a place that doesn't get big waves. Can you, does that mean you're not a core surfer? I mean, Florida never gets big waves. Right. So, well, I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you, how did you settle upon the idea that coreness was related to, um, chutzpah you know to to tackling like the toughest because why, why did why did you focus on that well it's you know i don't know how much other outdoor sports really have this kind of thing but i mean surfing is has such a well i guess they all probably do but i mean surfing has such a wide spectrum where it can be two feet and really fun it can be 20 feet and very really fun if that's what you're into but the idea that if you're truly hardcore you're going to surf no matter what right like there are experiences you might not have tapped into in big waves if you've never surfed them. And so can you call yourself a complete hardcore surfer if you don't know what it feels like to drop in on a, on a 15 to 20 foot wave? If you've never gotten a giant barrel to a place like Pipeline, there's a, that's a big element of the surf experience that you're not participating in. And so th- those are sort of the ideas I was wrestling with. Are those the ideas that do you have to do those things to be considered core? Or if you surf every single day, there's a guy uh, not far from me who was really famous for surfing every single day for like 10,000 days in a row. He set the Guinness Book of World Records, Dale Webster. Awesome guy. And I like, he's not a good surfer, you know, but he just paddles out his like terrible Sonoma County beach break every single day. He spent like decades working and living in a chicken coop so that he could afford to live at the beach and not do anything else. And every day, no matter what, 
He gets three waves. Now that doesn't, it gets really big up there. That might mean he's just like paddling out into the whitewater and riding foam in. He's not charging the waves at their peak. But I mean, I don't see how it gets any more hardcore than that. You know? I don't think um, so. That's that's pretty core. Yeah, and 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 that's and, and it. I you know I tried to apply that to the rest of the outdoor my outdoor life too. You know, it's like okay, so I love backpacking. Uh, I haven't done the PCT. Am I not a hardcore backpacker? I mean, it's it's interesting, and you start to compare yourself to others, and you. I, I, you know, I think there's some sort of natural urge to situate yourself on some sort of scale of, of coreness, talent, ability. I mean, it's the the term itself is pretty hard to define, um, in, in at least in the, in our pursuits. It is, but it's it's something that um, culturally we value, right? Like back in the I think it was the '80s or early '90s. I can't remember which surfer brand it was, but they were probably selling in Nordstrom. And so they started a sub brand called the more core division. Do you remember oh, of course. that MCD? And they had the gnarliest guys. I mean, they had the most tatted up, terrifying, like Hawaiian pros on their team. And it was like, well, you know, now that we're in Nordstrom, we're not core. Enough. So, <laughs> right. So yeah. for the core guys, we need the, this, this core thing. So, you know, when I think about core, I'm trying to think of analogous words and I don't know, maybe the, the, the one that comes most to mind is dedication. And um, in your example, Dale Webster, is that his name? Dale, who, you know, mm. I mean, that's dedicated. And, um, you know, <laughs> at what point dedication becomes obsession, I don't know exactly. But, um, and, you know, culturally, we value that, right? We value these things. And one of the things that I, I find interesting about, and I want to try to unpack in this conversation, is this idea of, of uh you know commitment and dedication and valuing that as an individual or as a culture you know somebody who's really committed themselves to this particular thing versus you know being more of a renaissance person where it's like you surf and you mountain bike and mm -hmm. you know you trail run and you do whatever these things and i'm also curious to to discuss you know the both the positives and negatives associated with this idea of coreness because i do think that it, it cuts both ways. Um, you know, for me, when I think about core, it's, it is, um, it's being out there when the conditions are shitty, basically, you know, yeah. and yeah. maybe that's, you know, getting your fix in, in our first episode, we talked about whether the Northeast was overrated or underrated as an adventure destination. And, you know, one of the things that I, I loved about living in the East was feeling like I was hardcore because I was skiing in the rain or I was skiing in minus 20 or I was mountain biking in the goop because you, you're just not the weather there. You're not blessed with perfect conditions a lot. And I think that there's something self-affirming about, and I don't know if it's, if it's self-delusional or if it's just self-affirming, but of like being out there when conditions kind of blow, yeah. you know, but I think about the times when I've thought about myself, like, you know, patting myself on the back, like, dude, you're so core. There's one, one I remember really well, for some reason I was in, um, in Breckenridge, Colorado and, uh, Summit County, which is really high and windy and it was just blowing sideways and it was kind of snowing and sort of grappling and pelting. And there was, there was just nobody out. Um, you know, but I had my hood up and I was out there in my goggles and it was, you know, I was practically getting knocked off my skis. I was just having a blast and it wasn't, it was sort of despite and because of the conditions. You totally. Know? Yeah. And and so there there is something about that where I think that this idea of 
and telling yourself that you're core or encouraging yourself to be core, it um, perhaps it pushes you to see things in a different light. And maybe it pushes you to find value in things like crappy conditions that you wouldn't otherwise find. But you, I mean, the, and you you want to be core, right? Like, I mean, you, you definitely want to be considered core. Well, speaking theoretically, yes. I'm not sure if I, at this point, but I think most of us. So, so what is well, the right? Difference? Yeah, like in your peak, though, when you were skiing every oh, day. Oh, for sure. Or, yeah, like you would have for been sh- super bummed if if someone thought you weren't a hardcore skier, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's like an. I mean, I feel like there's a. That's part, that's such a big part of it too. Is like you is like an in group signifier. You know, like one of the. I'm sure it's like this with lots of things. I'm learning this a little bit with like mountain biking and fly fishing and things I've taken on later on in my sort of adventure life. But I can tell the second you get out of your car, if you can surf like at the beach, like the way you open Uh your door for for real. But I mean, I have no doubt that it's like that with skiing too. You know, like if you watch me carry some skis through a parking lot, you're going to know I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. Um, And I'm sure it would take me years to get to the point where I'm holding the skis the same way everybody else does. Not because you're trying to look hard. You just have done it enough to where you can tell, you know, like, Surfing is so, so easy to, for me to spot someone's ability. I can, I can probably tell you how you surf, you know, at a certain point, just watching you walk across the beach. So why does that matter? Because I want, ah, I think it's because you, you want people to know that you're good at something, that you're dedicated to something. I, I, I don't know. I, that's the question that I struggle with because it doesn't matter to me in something else. I'll show up at a, at a stream I've never fished. And I, I love fly fishing, but I am not an expert. I've only been doing it for like, you know, six or seven years. And I, I don't care that it's clear. I'll ask people questions. Hey, is this the right, you know, is the right fly? Am I in the right spot? Like, should I go over there? Are there any fish here? <laughs> all that sort of stuff. It doesn't matter to me at all because I don't really care. But um, I will, you know, I don't surf nearly as much as I used to. But, uh, you know, I'm talking like surfing every day, multiple times a day to, you know, I'll surf a couple times a month at this point. Um, but I will, I would be re- even now it would cut me to the bone if someone mistook me for a, someone who wasn't a core surfer. Kook. Right. You know, the, the question of like, what, what I, did I want people to think of me as a course or as course skier, you know, at, at the peak of say my, you know, years as the editor powder. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, but you know, what, why is that? I, I think, you know, some of the words that come to mind are credibility, legitimacy, yeah, totally. for sure you know, that, that, you know what you're doing. And, um, you know, I was reading recently about, uh, some fundamental human need, I guess, needs or things that are wired into us, like to our days as, as proto humans, as proto hominids. And if you, you, you needed to be accepted by a group. And this is one of the reasons why I've heard that um, people are more scared of speaking in public than they are of death. <laughs> uh-huh. And 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 because like we are genetically or culturally wired to need to be accepted by the group because not being accepted by the group means potentially being an outcast and outcast means potentially not surviving, right? Like like these these things we we even if we're kind of loners, we still, we crave that kind of acceptance. And I wonder if, if that's a little bit what's going on here. It's like, well, I love skiing or I love mountain biking or you love surfing or whatever. And so we value the opinion of those other people there. And so it's really important to us, even if it's not a conscious thing mm-hmm. that we somehow feel like we're accepted by them because we know how to walk the walk and we know how to carry our skis correctly or 
I, for sure. I mean, the 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 kind of assholey part about this, when it comes to me at least, is that I don't even like most surfers. <laughs> I mean, for the most <laughs> part. I mean, when I when I was I worked at Surfer for ten years, and I would I would purposely try to not get invited on trips because I hated being around pro surfers all the time. And it wasn't because they made me feel like a like a bad surfer. It was just because we didn't really have much in common other than surfing. But I sure as hell wanted them to know that I knew how to surf, you know. And so, uh, yeah, it's not it's it's like an in group dynamic. But I'm not even sure I really want to be part of that group. <laughs> but you know, uh, I, it still matters. And and I wonder if you know, like I remember when I was writing the first essay about this. I remember trying to really where do the like what is even hard like what does hardcore itself even actually mean? Like what is it? Why did that term stick? And the only thing I could think of, and maybe this is obvious, but it's there's something important to some, to some people or to, to, to you at various points of your life to be thought of as at your core as a something, you know, like for me, it, it mattered to be a surfer at my core. Like that was a big part of my identity. And as I've gotten older, I care less about that. I mean, I don't present myself as a surfer. I won't even bring it up a lot. Like if, if I hear people talking about surfing around here, I, it used to be, I'd always chime in, Oh, where do you surf? What do you, what kind of boards do you ride? I don't really, yeah, it doesn't matter. I don't. I'm not looking to make more surfer friends anymore. It doesn't really matter. But if once the conversation switches around to, or if if I'm involved in the conversation, I'm going to make it real clear, real quick, that I know what I'm talking about. But um, I don't like. I don't have that urge as much anymore for my, uh, my, my, you know, to be a surfer at my core. And I don't have that at all with like mountain biking, or backpacking specifically but i will say that i feel the same way about being um and i hate this term but like an outdoorist or an outdoors person or whatever whatever we're called outdork whatever you want to call people that love outdoor recreation like it matters to me that i'm considered a hardcore outdoor person i i i'm i would i would hazard that hornus culturally is probably more destructive than not because mm -hmm. it, it probably creates an environment where people feel unwelcome and yeah. i think that we want people to feel unwelcome, whether it's individually or collectively. Last thing I would ever want to do is make somebody, whether I know them personally or that I'm speaking to through, you know, various channels to make them feel unwelcome or unworthy For because, sure. you know, who, who am I to say? The other side of it is I do think that it can be, you know, as I said before, the word I use was really self-affirming. I think it can push you into places that you might not otherwise go and have experiences you might not otherwise have. And then you become a more interesting or dynamic or well-rounded person because of that. And healthier. I mean, help, I think that's a healthier way to be. Right. But the thing is like, you can't use the word comparison before and comparison is, you know, comparing yourself to anybody is the, is the, you know, the thief of joy, right? Like that's, that's the beginning of the end when you start comparing. So, um, uh, is it, you know, is it even possible to, you know, compare, to think of yourself as core without comparing yourself to others? And then, you know, what, what kind of like drain does that start spiraling in as you're thinking about comparison? Yeah. Big, or even just uh, this, you know, this probably sounds, I think this, this probably sounds bad to the outside, to an outsider, but m maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But, you know, I'm, I'm 45 years old. Uh, it's not unusual to have a conversation with other people my age who've surfed most of their lives, who, who, it's not that I regret having learned how to surf, but, um, I do regret having spent so much time focused so, so much on it. Um, you know, so I think that's, there's a situation where corners can kind of drive you down a road that you don't really, uh, want to be having, or, you know, put you in a place that you wish you hadn't spent so much time at as you get older. I mean, there, I sacrificed a ton 
so that I would could just surf all the time. And you know, my life has turned out great, but I, you know, I, I there's been a lot. <laughs> it's, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, you know, my 30s were kind of gnarly because I was a lot, still a lot of soul searching. You know, like a lot of the questions that I've answered now in my 40s, I could have answered 10 years ago. You know, but I was still holding on to that like mo that feeling of having to surf every day, and that's all that mattered. I remember just getting into terrible fights. Uh, with my wife and we we really don't fight at all but i would be you know demanding that we move somewhere where the waves are better or more consistent or something you know i've i'm i can't live my whole life and never have lived somewhere where i can't you know where i can't surf in board shorts like this is ridiculous but to wear a wetsuit every time i surf i you know this is insane you know and like God, how stupid does that sound i'm like 30 years old yelling to my wife that we have to move to hawaii or something because there's parts of the surfing experience i still haven't you know yeah lived yet, that's you know that's incredibly selfish um yeah but I know that I know that feeling well, and I actually I know more than a few people, men, whose marriages have broken up mm -hmm. because they, because for a point of discussion, they considered themselves core and they had to do X sport exactly X X days or X hours a day, and um, and it's not. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable, but at some point, like your obsession or your commitment, I mean, if you're single, great. But if you're in a relationship or if you have kids, then I think that you have to look at what the cost of that is. And I mean, one of the nice things about getting older, I think, is that, you know, we, we all will still have ego, but at some point you're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's more important so, stuff. I got two kids running around. Like who gives a shit at the end of the day? You know? I know. You know, it's just, it's funny. We, we, we should wrap this up and move on to our next segment. But, you know, I, I'm just sort of thinking about like these cultural legacies. And, you know, when I was, so I, I was the editor of Powder for about a decade and I helped found Bike Magazine and, you know, I was riding, uh, you know, my bike practically every day. And, you know, I was walking the walk and I can remember going into bike shops and I'm thinking about sort of like the welcoming nature. I'm thinking about like this cultural uh, umbrella or zeitgeist yeah. about coreness, right? And whether it's welcoming. And I'm thinking about like the difference between walking in say an REI and whether that's welcoming or not versus going into an independent shop, you know, totally. whether it's a ski shop or a surf shop. I've actually found independent surf shops to pretty pretty welcoming surprisingly yeah, it is a, it is weird you're right it, it's weird strange but i would have to say see if, if you agree like the worst are independent bike shops like oh, totally even I, now like yeah even now and like i've got friends that own bike shops i have friends that work at bike there lots of great people in bike shops but collectively like i've gone in i'm like you know i clearly have been fit <laughs> for a bike <laughs> i'm wearing my bikeish clothes and i go in to get beta or whatever i like I should look like I know what I'm doing and I get like vibed as hard as I possibly can. Like I will never really understand that. And, and I, I just, I feel like it's almost like a, you know, a NIMBY, like once people get into totally. that sort of culture, they don't want to anybody else to like come in with them. Maybe they're so strongly identified. They don't want to share it. And so that's definitely, I think a place where this like self-perception of core is just plain toxic just a way to make me feel a little bit, a little bit superior to someone who's not part of the group, you know, I hate to say it, but it's true. Um, or to just want to belong to that group. That's really hard to get into. And you finally get in there and you're just like, and, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a 
very alluring place to be something there's something very attractive about it but yeah. having having you know i will say too that that as i've shed up that part of my identity more and more over the years surfing is way more fun way more fun to me now than it was 20 years ago when i surfed every day two three times a day uh i don't press i don't care if i get waves great if i don't that's fine i don't get mad if my performance is bad nothing none of that it's just it's just fun and and i'm so glad that you know i'm able to do that now yeah, that's a good place to be. I, I think that um, in closing, the, the the final word that I would say is analogous to core, and, and I think a much more positive word is passion. Yeah. And I think passion doesn't, it's not freighted with this idea of accomplishment. Totally. You could be brand oh, new and be passionate. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that I value most is people who are, are passionate about things. And, you know, we, we don't know how you got in a lineup or you get on a chairlift. You don't know anything about somebody else's life, right? You don't know how many kids they have. You don't know about their work constraints. You don't know if they're caring for kids or caring for elderly parents. Like you just don't know anything. And this idea that we should be judging anybody by that is absolutely ridiculous. But the, but hearing them hoot and holler because they're stoked and they're passionate. Like, I think those are the things that, that really, that we need to be celebrating. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I agree. So, okay. We will be right back after the break. The key to happiness is pretty simple. Work less, play more, drink coffee. At Long Weekend, we designed our blends to be up for anything. Unfussy, always delicious, and roasted to order. Get your beans today at longweekend.coffee. Adventure Journal is a quarterly print magazine featuring inspiring stories, incredible photography, and fantastic design. If you love traveling, the outdoors, and adventure, you'll love AJ in print. Support independent media and subscribe at subscribetoaj.com. Welcome back, everybody. Um, you know, I just want to—I want to drop in a, a, a plug really quick here for the for your local library. While I was uh, on the break, I added a, a new book to my uh, my hold cart at the library. And you know, I usually I go to like an online bookstore first, but then I remember there's a library just down the street. God, it's just amazing to just get books just delivered to your library. You just go pick them up. So don't forget if you have a library, give them some support. They could all use it. But the book I put in my cart is The New Wilderness. Uh, Steve has been talking about it a bunch lately. Sounds like it's right up our alley of a of a of a kind of a moody uh, sort of I don't know maybe maybe a thriller maybe not uh, about surviving in a in a in a wilderness that is a refuge from an urban blight. But uh, what, what's going on with this book? It sounds incredible. What what, what uh, why do you dig it so much? Okay, so the book is The New Wilderness. It's by Diane Cook. And it is uh, dystopian post-apocalyptic novels are absolutely catnip for me. Yeah, me too. I don't think that there's probably an AJ listener who hasn't at some point imagined when they're in the backcountry that there's been a zombie apocalypse and they're the last ones left and they're kind of wondering like, okay, <laughs> what next? How do I deal? I mean, there's a whole genre of these things of wondering, you know, like last man standing like it's just it's fascinating stuff to imagine and so um diane cook uh this is her first novel her previous book was a collection of short stories called man v nature so the idea of humanity um wrestling and and trying to live in nature and is is one of her big themes she's a former producer of this american life so she knows storytelling really well 
And so the book is, uh, it's a sort of post-apocalyptic, sort of dystopian, definitely cli-fi, you know, climate fiction. And um, it's the, the concept is that there is a small group of people. Well, there's first there's the city, which is a, all they ever call it is the city. And I, I perceive it as like a generic, giant, sprawling Gotham or Los Angeles. And the city has become a kind of a desperate place where like trees don't grow. There are no animals. Um, there's hardly any doctors. Uh, I'm picturing kind of Blade Runner, you know, at some point, somewhat in the future. And um, the government has established what they call the wilderness state as an experiment. And the wilderness state sprang from a proposal um, by a guy named Glenn, who is married to the protagonist, B, of uh, seeing what it would be like if we put a group of about 20 people out into a wilderness environment and measured their impact on the world. Is it like they're trying to see if people remember how to live that way? It's unclear. So there's a lot that is unclear about this book. And there are a lot of loose ends, which I love about it. There's just mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that you're like, wait, what? So the protagonist is B. And B is one of the first group of 20, along with Glenn and their daughter, Agnes. Agnes was very sick when they lived in the city and she was dying basically from some kind of unnamed respiratory thing. And so B, B's whole mission is to protect Agnes, to get Agnes out of the city. And so they apply to be part of this first group and they make it. They, they are part of the first group that gets to be in the wilderness state. And Agnes, who's four, is uh, like, it's, it's immediate. Like she starts thriving right away. And so one of the things that I love about it is there's this group of 20. We, we come in a few years after they have been dropped in the wilderness. And so they've had, um, they've lost people. You know, there's, there's these little sort of, Cook writes these little passages where like, um, like when we still had all our toes sort of things. Like, so just like, like, like <laughs> yeah, drop these cool. offhand things. Or, you know, we've, we've already experienced our fears of like a cougar mauling or whatever. <laughs> and you start to think like, what would a bunch of city people do when they have been dropped in a wilderness with whatever they could carry um, after like three or four years? Well, that's so, fun too, because it lets your mind kind of run with the bad things that could have happened. If she doesn't get super like specific about it, I like that. She does in some cases, but she talks about like how, like, you know, the watches no longer work and then they lost hmm. the watches, you know, and how they're <laughs> down to like their last knife. And, um, they're just these little things that you think, well, well, I would be in my camo fatigues and I'd have my Gore-Tex or whatever, Totally. you know, well, those things don't last, you know, after years out there. So. The, the there's a couple of driving forces behind the book and it, it opens with a, a like a very brutal scene um, warning it's it's tough to hear I'm not going to read anything from it because it's particularly visceral but visceral but in the beginning B has given um, birth to a stillborn daughter and she at one point she she writes like how long was I pregnant was it five months? Was it six months? Was it seven months? And in that one little clause, like you, you sort of get this sense of like losing time. Yeah. Right. Of not like the normal waypoints that we have in modern life are not there for these people. They don't have watches. 
they live through seasons. Um, they, uh, they have to fend for themselves. So there are rules to this. Now, there, it's not clear how big this wilderness state is, but it's pretty big. And the driving force is a group of people called rangers. Now, the rangers are sort of cops. They're kind of the man, basically. Mm -hmm. And the rangers, the group has what's called the manual. And the manual, they have to carry the manual that was given to them at the very beginning. And it's, it's this thick book with all of the rules that they have to follow. And their rules are essentially leave no trace, basically. You can't, stay, you can't stay in any place for very long. You uh, can't leave evidence of your passing. You can't leave micro trash and you have to keep moving. And the Rangers will come along and the Rangers. Do the Rangers the live this way? They don't. Yeah, it's not clear how the Rangers live. This is one of the mysteries, but they'll show up. They'll just show mm -hmm. up. Sometimes it will be a drone will show up and tell them that they have to move along or a Ranger will drive Wild. up in a truck. And the Rangers are basically dicks for the most part. And they come Weird. along and, and they're, they they sort of sound like prison guards in a way like they have that kind of like attitude of authority and the group has different different people in the group have different responses to it b is always trying to accommodate like b is a survivalist and she sees mm -hmm. herself as a survivalist and, and one of the things that she is is one of her core imperatives oh. is keeping core. Core, there you go. That, yeah, keeping There's core. that. Is keeping Agnes alive. And um, and so the rangers will come along and they will make them move. And so at the, at the beginning of the book, where B has birthed the stillborn daughter, it's an area that they, it, it's sort of like a happy valley for them. They've, they, they acknowledge that they've stayed too long there. They have stashed some of their few remaining comforts from life beforehand, like a pillow. In previous life, B was a interior decorator, and she finally broke it big and got this feature in like an architectural digest style magazine. And she brought the magazine with her to the wilderness <laughs> and she, she stashed it. But this idea of comforts is antithetical to this idea of the wilderness and the rangers hate these sort of things. And so they're, they're kind of like driving them forward. So the, the big sort of inciting event is that the rangers tell them that they, they have to go to what's called, uh, I think it's lower post or like lower, lower post. And it's basically like a ranger outpost where they can get their mail and they can uh, sort of check in and they have to like do atonement for, you know, they have to report like all the deaths, any bursts, they have to atone for any trash they left behind. And so there's like this idea of the rangers like with the lash and they have to move them forward. And the group doesn't really want to leave because this is sort of their happy place. Yeah. One of the things that I love about the new wilderness is how Diane Cook creates this tension. There are multi levels of tension through the book. So as, as you know, one of my favorite dystopian post-apocalypse books is the dog stars by Peter Heller. The dog stars is, is a relatively simple book relative to this. There's, there's a guy who's trying to survive. He's got a dog. Um, is he going to be able to survive essentially? 
in this, you have this group and you have some of the tensions that I jotted down. Like the main tension is between mothers and daughters. It's between B who's trying to protect Agnes and Agnes who's trying to grow up. But you also have these tensions between the rangers and the groups. You have the tension between the city and the wilderness, between life and death, between the familiar and the new. So they like, they don't want to like, like finally are familiar with this little happy Valley and they don't want to leave it. They don't know what the animals are going to be like when they move to lower, lower post. They don't know what, you know, what the foraging is are going to be like there's surviving versus thriving. And then there's also like the group dynamic versus the individuals that are in the dynamic. Like there's so much going on with this and it just sort of keeps ratcheting up. And meanwhile, you, as are imagining you as the reader are imagining yourself like, well, yeah, would I be B or would I be Agnes? Well, I can, I can relate to what Agnes is saying. Or, or, or does it, do, I mean, are you also wondering what you would be, you know, whether that would be something you wanted to do or like, does it seem at any point like living in this happy Valley is cool? I mean, like the dog stars, one of the things I liked about it is it is a post-apocalyptic book, but at the same time, I kind of would rather live there, <laughs> you know, like he's hunting, he's fishing, he, there's no one to bother him, you know, like it's like this uh, until like the, you know, bad people come in, he has to shoot them. Yeah, it's a great question. And so the short answer for me is hell no, because I don't want to be in a group out there. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the group dynamics are really pretty fascinating and the politics of the group are a, a whole subplot to the thing. And B as a survivor, so B is B and Glenn, her husband and Agnes are out there. Glenn is older and he starts to slow down a little bit. He kind of gets ailing. And so B is making these calculations about like what she needs to do within the group to keep them alive, to keep them thriving, to keep Agnes alive. And um, so midway through the book, the perspective changes radically. It, it goes from B to Agnes. And this is where I think one of the most interesting dynamics is, which is, do you, if you're in this situation, do you just want to survive? Right. Or are you thriving? And so B as an interior direct dec decorator, like she's committed to thriving no matter what it takes. Sorry, excuse me. She's committed to thriving and protecting Agnes no matter what it takes. But she also is thinking about her relationship with her mom and like the soft sheets back in the city. And like, she just wants to get by. Whereas Agnes comes to the wilderness state at age four. And now it's a few years later. And so she's like seven or eight years old. And so she's grown up in this place. Yeah, that's all she, she has, knows. Yeah. Well, she has some distant memories of the city, but like they're very distant. And Agnes is, I, I, I want to use the word feral for Agnes that's not really quite accurate. There's, there's a strong streak of wildness in her and I guess animalness. And so Agnes, when it switches to her perspective, like she's talking to animals and she's listening to animals and she's identifying with animals. And there's this tension where she, she wants to become one of the leaders, even though she's a kid, because she feels like she understands the nature of nature better than the adults. And so I think that's one of the things that is really, for me, was very animating, less so than do I want to be in a group, more so than would I be more like B mm -hmm. or would I be more like Agnes? Interesting. Interesting. Would you come to, what would you decide? I, I like to think I'd be more like Agnes. Yeah. So, you know, B, it remains in tension. 
right. through this whole thing where Agnes is like, she's all in. I think I'd be more, I think, God, that's, a, you know, one of the things I think about when I'm in, you know, you're, you're right. Like who doesn't put themselves in that position when they're out and they don't see other people for a long time. It's like, do I even want to go through that? Right. Like, would I rather, you know, do I even want to uh, like screw th like surviving or thriving? Like, is there even any point? Like, do I want to give up what we have to, to live in the woods if, if that's all that there is for me? You know, and I, I don't really know the answer to that. That's that's what I always wrestle with. Like if I'm in if I'm in that situation, do I just find a cliff and just doot, you know, or whatever? Like, or do I or do I try to make the best of it and make make a go of it? That's that's one of the reasons I love these sorts of books. Um, I, I never really know where it comes down. It kind of depends on how how nice it sounds in the presentation of, of their environment. I mean, a lot of this sort of sounds like. I, you know, towards the beginning, I thought this was going to be like a straight Garden of Eden allegory. I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it sort of seems like that to a degree. Um, but man, I don't know. I, I never really feel so comfortable in the in the backcountry that I feel like that could be my home. And I love being there, but I don't necessarily want that to be my entire life. Yeah, well, you're you're always reminded by the presence of the Rangers that this is an artificial construct. Totally. And this is one of the things that they talk about, like whether it, like the, the group amongst themselves, like, you know, this isn't, yes, wilderness state, but there were people here before. Yeah. And there will, you know, and will, it may be something later. So it, it really, it, it does get you thinking about the nature of land use. And I think one of the things that I love about dystopian and post-apocalyptic novels is this, this sort of sense of self-sufficiency that I could theoretically survive on my own or with my family or, you know, and what we know about like real world disasters and even, you know, preparing for the impacts of climate change is that it's connectivity is what we need. Right. right? Like, no, there is going to like the, the idea of like the lone ranger is, uh, you know, it's, it's myth and it's, it's not particularly healthy and it's not, it's not culture, it's not society. And if we are gonna survive something like an apocalypse or the challenges of climate change, we need to be connected with other people, which is uncomfortable, right? Like that's one of the things that Cook is writing about, like the discomforts of being in a group right. and the shifting dynamics other. of a group. Mm -hmm. And as like, you know, they, they, the group has decided that they're gonna decide things by consensus, but then later that maybe they wanna decide things by vote or maybe somebody sort of steps up and becomes like dictatorial. So I, you know, I'm not gonna, I, I won't, there's, there's a lot going on with it. it. There's a lot left. There are, I'm not gonna spoil anything. It, it does remain, I would say, tense and conflicted and fascinating all the way to the very end. It's an absolute great read. What's, what's the author's name again? The author's name is Diane Cook. The name of the book is The New Wilderness. Awesome. Yes. Well, it's on my list. So, yeah. So now we're going to move on and we are going to tackle gear and we're going to talk about wetsuits. And you are going to tell me all about what Patagonia is doing trying to get rid of neoprene. You know, there there were there were some elements of that book description that actually make it make a nice segue in terms of uh just pollution and 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 people being sick from living in an urban sort of hellscape, um, which may not seem like it has anything to do with wetsuits, but it does. Um, so 
I've been testing out a new suit from Patagonia the last, I don't know, it's been, it's been a while. I think I got it last spring. They invited me down to Ventura. Um, they were super excited to release this new line of suits that is uh, neoprene free. Now they've been doing that for a while. I think 2016 is when they first started making neoprene free wetsuits. And the reasoning being that neoprene is just unbelievably toxic. Uh, it's a petroleum based product anyway. Um, and then to make it requires all kinds of volatile organic compounds, which are unbelievably carcinogenic. I mean, one of the worst things you can breathe in or really have anywhere near you. Um, and I'll be honest, I hadn't given a whole lot of thought to where neoprene actually comes from um, until fairly recently. There's a documentary making the rounds right now called The Big C, S-E-A, but it's also about like the Big C cancer. Um, and it's about a neoprene factory in Louisiana. Um, and uh, a lot of so the people that work there, but the people that live near it um, have like something like a 50% higher cancer rate than the surrounding areas. All due to, um, or mostly due to a chemical called chloroprene, which is uh, an important component of, of neoprene. So anyway, you know, you go into a wet, you go into a surf shop, and you get this really pleasant smell of like fresh rubber, and like what that, that's that's the the off gassing of all these like terrible compounds that are that are, that are in wetsuits. Ew. And I mean, that's kind of the thing with like surfboards too. I mean, surfing is a, is a is a disastrously toxic uh, pursuit. So anyway, Patagonia back in 2016. Um, started experimenting with a chemical called Ulex. What's well, a chemical, but it's a natural rubber. It, um, it used to come from a plant, like a weed. Um, they've, they've switched over, the company that actually produces Ulex has switched over to a tree. Um, but it's still basically the same, the same uh, stuff. It's just, it's a natural latex-free rubber that Patagonia started making in 2016, or started using their suits in 2016. Now, Patagonia has been making wetsuits for a long time. Uh, I think they started in the early 2000s, 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. Um, they've never been known to for making particularly good wetsuits. I mean, they, durability has always been the, at the forefront for them, so their suits have always been heavy and really stiff. Um, a lot of people would wear them just because they wanted to support Patagonia, but I don't know anybody who really truly loved Patagonia suits um, when they first came out. Uh, and then the Ulex suits, I had the first one they made in 2016. It was really hard to wear. I mean, they were clearly just working out what Ulex could do. It was extremely stiff, had a very strange shininess. The whole wetsuit was, we call it smoothie. It's a kind of a smooth part that's often on the chest of a wetsuit. The whole thing was made of that. So you had this like very bright, slick seal skin look um, to you. And it, was, it wasn't very comfortable, which is part of the reason they were so excited to have a, like, a bunch of people come down and check out their new ones. Um, and so they've just released their new their new models uh, they, like just weeks ago, and it's by far the best suit they've ever made. They're really close to having figured out how to how to turn Ulex into something that feels just like traditional neoprene. It's super light, much lighter than their old suits. Super flexible, super comfortable to get on. It's one of the easiest suits to put to put on and take off I've ever had. Uh, the material just slides really nicely across your skin. That's that's due to the jersey lining, not the not the Ulex, Ulex itself. Uh, but they've they've done a great job. The other thing that was cool about it about this trip was, um, you know, I, I've Patagonia is really big on repairing their suits. So they have a giant dedicated facility um, staffed by like five or six people. I met most of them. That all they do is repair wetsuits that people send in, and I think they said they they've repaired like five thousand suits in the last two years. Um, that's always been a big part of what they're of what they're doing with their suits you know they they make them in a, a way that they can be easily repaired so they're so good about that you have a tear some of the tape starts coming off a zipper breaks whatever it is you send it in they fix it it's awesome 
Um, and they'll even do that with other brands. I mean, you can you can send them another brand. You have to pay for it, but you can send them another brand and they'll fix it. They drive a van around surf communities and fix wetsuits all the time. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool to see. Um, and the other thing that's awesome about them is they are, you know, they're, they're not like hoarding that technology. I mean, they, they, they developed Ulex wetsuits and they immediately were like, okay, big three wetsuit makers, you know, Rip Curl, Billabong, Quicksilver, here you go. You don't have to use neoprene anymore. You can use Ulex. And it's been been slow to catch on but other brands are doing it i also have a billabong suit made from this stuff that works really well so why um, do you think it's why do you think that's slow you know i'm i'm when, I'm, I'm curious here about th there's a lot of materials in outdoor products that are just not good for the environment not good for people probably in their manufacturing so it's it's uh Kudos to Patagonia for taking the lead on this. I'm fascinated by the dynamic of like making this thing open source and whether people actually use it or not when so many brands are nominally committed to improving their, you know, their, uh, their products. So what, what has been the reaction from these guys? Why has it been slow? What does this say about um, potentially game-changing material and it's adoption or, or non-adoption? I mean, it's it's a good question. And obviously, you know, somebody who works at Quicksilver or something would be would be able to answer that. But I, 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 I suspect it has everything to do with performance. I mean, the, the first the first round of ULEX suits were just, they just didn't, they kept you warm, but you couldn't surf well in them. And so, you know, why, why bother to try something like that if you already know that your traditional super stretching neoprene works great? I mean, the surfers are notoriously bad about choosing something that has an environmental benefit over a performance benefit. I mean, like, I, you know, I, if, if, a, if, a, if a backpack is made with more, you know, environmentally responsible materials than one that's not, great. It probably works just as good. You're not going to be able to tell a difference. But something like this, it's pretty quickly apparent that if it doesn't work as well, you're not going to use it. Um, so I suspect it has something to do with that. But Patagonia also knows they're not, they're not a big player in the wetsuit industry. I mean, they're probably like the seventh or eighth biggest wetsuit maker. And so for them, they, they know they're not going to, they actually are very upfront about this. They know they're not going to dominate the, the industry. They're not going to, all of a sudden, everybody's wearing Patagonia. Their whole point was like, let's make something with Ulex um, that doesn't require petroleum. It's not a petroleum product. Uh, it's super durable. It, 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 it comes from sustainable tree farms. I mean, you, it, it's just it's a great product to use for this um, and show that we can do this, that you can make suits with it and then kind of get 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 in, you know, change the market that way rather than just dominating it. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I they're kind of doing that with like Patagonia provisions, too, with their food arm, you know, trying to incorporate, you know, encourage sustainable food practices and organic farming, and all these sorts of things. That's not new for them, um, but. It's taken, like, I think this suit will take off. This suit is the one where people will actually buy it. You'll start seeing this more commonly. It's not, I don't think it's any more expensive than the regular. Well, they only make these, but it's not really, their suits have always been about four fifty, five hundred bucks, and they're the same price now. And I, I heard, I, you know, actually just recently that Excel Wetsuits just announced. Yeah that they're moving, are they moving fully to Ulex? Or That's what they say, yeah, by 2026. Okay. And where um, is which, Excel in the um, pecking order? I think they're, they're, so the big three would be Rip Curl, Billabong, and Quicksilver. Uh, Excel's probably fourth, I would guess. Um, Excel's pretty big. They're, they're, um, and that's kind of all they do is, is make wetsuits. So they're, they're pretty big, and they're, they're a core brand. Like, they're easily one of the like, most respected wetsuit brands. Okay, so core. That, there's, more, there's our core again. Exactly. More so than the big three. So 
the the Patagonia suit is called the regulator or the line is the regulator, right? And yeah. it, four to five hundred bucks it's been ages since I bought a wetsuit. How how is that stack up compared to exactly that's exactly what you'd expect to pay for for a brand new XL that isn't made with Ulex right now I mean it's, I think that's probably all I'm sure the cost has been an issue as well trying to you know scale that but that's about right they don't seem to cost anymore and so the thing with with wetsuits is if you surf every day uh you you go through I mean I, I I've gone through you know you'll go through a couple suits in a year pretty pretty commonly if you only have one wetsuit I mean um if you have more than one they can last a bit longer but that's another benefit that they uh, that these suits have is that you know when they're engineering them they're they're going okay so here's where the seams are going to go you know what if we're going to have to replace this seam it would be easier if it was here rather than here uh, if the stitching is this way rather than this way so they actually build it so that it can be repaired easier which is pretty cool I mean I don't I've never been good about sending my suits in for repair you know they just because they've you know you just get another one you know it sucks but that's just how it's always kind of been see see this is now we're, we're your argument earlier to margaret that you should be living in a place where you could trunk it it's sounding a lot less selfish now it actually sounds like <laughs> you you were thinking about environmental sustainability yeah, I could and be, the greater the wetsuits. You, you need to live in a warm place where you can just trunk it because yes, yes exactly yes. i support I mean, that fully it's it's just it's it's really cool to see a brand you know I, I I don't like say what you will about Patagonia I mean they're not perfect nobody is um, but it's really cool to see a brand that's actively trying so hard to to really change things and they know they're not going to make a billion dollars off of these wetsuits and when you're actually I mean I don't know maybe it's like this everywhere you know I visited the Mountain Hardware Repair Facility and they're all they're pretty passionate about the same thing. Um, it's always cool to see it though, you know, to be in the little warehouse and you're, and I'm, I'm looking at wetsuits that people have sent in, you know, and these are, you know, this, there's some, a wetsuit is different than a lot of other pieces of outdoor gear. I mean, you, you have to have one. So if you surf in a place where you need a wetsuit, you can't surf without one. It's a, it's a really big part of your life. It's not just a pair of shoes or something. Right. It also extends beyond surfers, right? Like, I mean, I, you know, the surfers are a relatively small community compared to say hikers. Totally. So, you know, is, is Ulex, I mean, there's, there's neoprene applications and all over you know, the and white water, you mm -hmm. know, all kinds of things. Is Ulex being adopted anywhere else or is it just within the surf world? I, that's a great question. And I don't know. I mean, I would presume, I mean, most of like Excel, for example, makes, they make dive suits as well, like body glove, these other companies, they usually make dive wetsuits too. So I presume there as well. Okay. Uh, I mean, having said that, I don't know if the properties are different, like if you need a certain kind of neoprene. But again, if, people are going to be reluctant. You know, your life is in your hands with some, some of these sorts of things. Like, I'm not going to trust a new a new material if I'm a diver, probably. But yeah, totally. I don't see, like, they made it clear that it doesn't cost any more to use, to use Ulex. And, at this, and even if it did, I mean... All you have to do is watch about 20 minutes of that big C documentary to, to think I'm never, I don't ever want a conventional wetsuit or anything made of neoprene ever again. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it happens to be a particularly caustic, nasty business uh, to, to make and sell neoprene. So it's, you know, I, I do think that probably every company will be using this pretty soon, but I don't okay. see why it wouldn't also trickle down into like bike bags and things like that, or, you know, fly fishing applications. My All my fly fishing stuff have neoprene booties, you know. Um, oh, they are using that. For, I think Patagonia is using Ulex in their fly fishing uh, line as well. So. Great. Well, that's that's good encouragement. And, and although um, the new wilderness is fiction, it's a reminder that this wilderness state 
there's only 20 people there plus the rangers so most of us if we're living in that world we're gonna be in the city so <laughs> let's keep our <laughs> carcinogens to right. a minimum well thank you everybody for listening and watching we are adventure journal on instagram you can subscribe to our beautiful quarterly magazine or our free newsletter which that guy writes every week at adventure-journal.com we'll see you next time bye